Hey everyone, this is Victor from Cyborg for Life, and today I have a very special interview for you. I'm joined by Dr. Quinn Schrader, a friend, podiatric doctor, and soon-to-be novelist, where we're going to rewind time and go back to where it all started as we discuss the fascinating history of Ilizarov. Now, if you're the slightest bit familiar with limb lengthening, you've probably heard the name Ilizarov before, perhaps for being a world-renowned orthopedic external ring fixator device that's still used today for limb lengthening and deformity reconstruction, or perhaps you heard of it from its surgeon namesake himself, the godfather of limb lengthening. Gabriel Ilazarov. So without further ado, I bring you the history of Ilazarov with Dr. Quinn Schrader. Today I want to welcome you to part one of our multi-part interview series as we do a deep dive on the legacy of Gabriel Ilazarov, the godfather of limb lengthening. And I want to start by welcoming our special guest presenter to the show, Dr. Quinn Schrader. Dr. Schrader, how are you doing today? Good, Victor. It's nice to finally be here. I, I've seen your show so much, been watching it for Oh, going on a, a year now. And so to be on the other side of, of the screen is it's, it's odd to feel, to be honest, but happy to be here. Can't wait. It's exciting. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, real quick, I want to do a background on Dr. Schrader, who is a fresh, eager podiatric doctor. He's originally from Indiana and attended undergrad at Purdue University. He did four additional years of medical school at Midwestern University and is now part of the Mercy Health Hospital System in Toledo, Ohio. Dr. Schrader is in his first of three years in residency, specializing in foot and ankle surgery, including trauma, reconstruction, ankle replacements, infections, orthoplastics, elective procedures, and a variety of other pathologies. He's also a proud new dad. Dr. Schrader is also an investigative journalist working on his first composite novel, which contains a collection of short stories that focuses on the doctors, drugs, and medical teams that keep that help keep the people of this world on their feet and moving. One of his chapters details the exciting and intricate history of the Ilazarov apparatus, in which he is here to share with us today and provide interesting facts about the ancestry of limb lengthening and cosmetic stature lengthening. So without further ado, we're going to go ahead and get started on our presentation. So, uh, Quinn, Dr. Quinn, I call him Quinn because he's, you know, we're kind of friends and he's yeah. come to visit me here in Baltimore and we sat down and had, you know, deep discussions. So uh, he brought a presentation with him. So Quinn, I'm going to go ahead and let you share your screen. Um, well, as uh, we've already sort of done it, this is going to be kind of a casual conversation between Victor and I. Uh, keep it casual, keep it light, but a lot of good material is going to be in here. And Victor, I just want to throw you some love. Shout out to you and C4L. I think what you're doing is incredible. I think you are just ahead of the curve right now. Um, who you bring on, what you bring in, the content that you do is is incredible. And I don't think you give get enough thanks. People are always, you know, uh, you're thanking them for coming on, but what you're doing and um, for for your community, the people you're doing it for, I just want to say uh, great job. So thank you. Uh, Appreciate it. Yeah, I'll start with that. But yeah, so a little bit about me, um, some housekeeping things before really we, we get started. I'm a first year resident, so my residency is three years. I've done undergrad, I've done four years in medical school, as you already mentioned, and I do foot and ankle surgery. So, um, you know, to clear the air, I'm not an orthopedic surgeon, I'm a foot and ankle surgeon, which is its own branch, its own separate focus, um, basically dealing with pathologies from the knee down, so to speak, but dealing a lot with ankle and, and uh, rear foot, forefoot, um, different aspects of that, as we already talked about. Um, I do apply external fixators, um, not for cosmetic lengthening, not for lengthening in general, for my own uh, kind of separate type of pathologies, anything from 
uh, you know, anything, our big one, Charco, if you've ever heard of Charco before, mm-hmm. but it can be for, uh, infections, but a lot of it's limb salvage, you know, when we're kind of at our wits end and we're doing everything we can to save somebody's foot or somebody's leg to avoid amputation. Um, so that's some of the big reasons I'm applying it. They're stationary. Um, and, uh, some of my doctors I work with around here do it as well. Um, so to clear the air there, I've, I've never done limb lengthening. I won't do limb lengthening. <laughs> However, I'm truly fascinated with the subject of it. Um, but when it comes to Elizarov, as we're going to find out, um, he's kind of the bread and butter, the ancestry of, of limb lengthening and of many, many, many other procedures outside of cosmetic limb lengthening. So, uh, just kind of want to start with that. We'll transition to in just a few words on what my novel is. Um, mm-hmm. It's going to be about 14 chapters or so is kind of what I have it scoped out to be. And I, I'm about a third to go on a half of the way through it. Mm-hmm. Um, and what the book is, is it's on the medicine of movement is what I'm calling it. And my job is all about keeping people on their feet, keeping people walking. We don't understand till, till you're in it just how debilitating it can be when you can't move from point A to point B. And there's a lot of different disciplines. My podiatric discipline, orthopedics, vascular, physical therapy, infectious disease, a lot of different people, doctors, corporations, drugs that go into it. And what I'm trying to do is tell a really cool story of all these different areas um, and people. Uh, The story is not only focused on medical history and many of uh, my friends and doctors that are doing some of these awesome procedures, but um, focus on the patients a lot. Um, And it can be awesome and inspiring at times, um, like some of the stuff we're going to talk about today, but um, it can also be very realistic and um, very sad at times, especially um, I get pretty, pretty in depth with uh, some of the conversations I've had, some of the surgeries I've had to do um, and how they've affected people's lives. And I followed them outside of the OR into their, what their now new normal routines are. So, um, you know, in the same way people write books on the brain or they might write books on running or they might write books on dieting. This is on the medicine of movement. Um, there might be other books out there like it. Um, but this will be a one of a kind, uh, really unique experience that also tells some of my own personal stories. Um, and just to, you know, build on that. Cause a lot of people are like, okay, so what does that mean? So, um, so obviously we're going to talk about one of these chapters, which is Elizarov, uh, and I call him Elizarov, Elizarov, I'll, I'll probably, uh, I'll probably stick to Elizarov. It's a little easier to say, and that's what a lot of the community calls him. So, um, but one of it is on what we're going to talk about over these next four episodes or so. I do have one on cosmetic limb lengthening. Um, and I'm really excited about that one as well. I've already, Got some uh, people you've directed me to who mm-hmm. we're writing the chapter on right now. Um, I'm still looking for candidates too, by the way. Um, really interested in talking to a quadrilateral lengthening patient. If anybody's interested, um, they can contact me um, or anybody that's about ready to begin. Um, you know, a lot of people I've talked to are already in the process or past it. So um, you're welcome to reach out to me or reach out to Victor. Um Absolutely. But um, the, that, that chapter is in the works right now. But other chapters deal with um, amputation, as I've already mentioned, um, three different patients that we are, um, that are all part of one chapter that I take you through, you know, are we able to save their legs or not due to the circumstances, three very different circumstances they're in. Uh, it's kind of an up and down roller coaster. 
Um, I talk in a chapter about uh, people that now have completely severed spinal cords, say from different accidents, and that doctors uh, are able to reattach these fibers and actually get these people walking again. You know, um, people are able to have babies again um, after being paraplegic in their their young days, or you know, they are able to walk their daughter down the aisle um, after uh, thinking they'd never walk again. Mm-hmm. Um, I go into prosthetics, um, I go into bionics, um, some of the cool new features, um, attaching, um, uh, nerves and muscles back together in order to help people move. Um, I even go as far back. I have several PhDs on this project with me who are paleontologists and anthropologists. And we look at the first fish that actually walked from water that came from water and walked on land. So fins are actually becoming arms and legs, and we can still see a lot of those uh, features in our anatomy today. Um, so that's just about three or four chapters I've mentioned. It's, it's obviously much broader um, than even this. So uh, it's going to be fun. I'm really excited. Yeah. Um, as far as this one goes, I'm holding nothing back here. I'm going to be telling you more than what's even going into my book. Cause we have four, um, you know, we have four of these and we're probably gonna be about an hour on each or maybe more, depending on how great the discussion is. So, Mm uh, this is all for C4L. This is all for you. Um, I have no monetary value in this. Uh, I'm doing this because I like learning about medicine. I like learning about the history of medicine and I I'm hoping your audience will too. Um, so I'll reveal a lot of things throughout this that didn't make the cut in the book. And I, um, I hope you guys enjoy that. Um, and I'm here to give what I think is going to be one of the most thorough accounts of um, Gavril Lizarov. And uh, as you call him, the grandfather of external fix uh, external fixation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, there are there's some good writing out there. I want to mention three. I'll mention them in a few, but th- there's some very good writing out there on him. Um, nothing, I think, in this digital world on what we're doing. Uh, to this level. So I think this is going to be the best out there on it, um, especially that's being done in English. So I, I think it'll be well received in that way. Um, I've kept the slides pretty brief. Okay. Somebody once told me you give a PowerPoint, people are either going to listen to you or they're going to read what's on the slides. They're not going to do both. So the slides are brief. They're concise, few words. Uh, we're going to mainly put up some more pictures because those are worth a thousand words. Um, but I just want everybody to sit back and listen. I mean, I think this is just going to be fun for you. And, uh, we're going to make a lot of different connections outside of Elizabeth's life as well and how they apply to other parts of medicine. Um, I look forward to questions. So we're not doing these live. People can submit their question. Um, we're probably going to do this about every week, maybe every two weeks. We'll, we'll see how it works out, but watch this. In the meantime, if you have questions, send them to Victor, post them Mm -hmm. in the chat, whatever Victor and I'll set up. Uh, the next five to 10 minutes of video two to answer some of the questions um, as long as they're within the chronological order and not giving away stuff later on. Um, but again, my disclosure, I have no commercial affiliations. Um, I'm, I'm purely doing this out of uh, the love for the sport, I guess, so to speak. Um, and then lastly, if there's any discrepancies or errors, exaggerations, anything like that, that I talk about um, throughout any of these videos, um, those are truly my fault, um, that if, you know, if something doesn't seem accurate, um, and we try to decipher out some of those myths, but anything that may not be correct, that's completely my fault, my fault only. So we have tried to do everything we can to keep this as accurate as possible. Um, 
and I've named it the scrap metal surgeon. Um, uh, appropriately, I, I think you'll find out. And Victor, do you have any questions before we kind of get going a little more? No, nah, man, I'm just super excited to be here with you. I mean, this is something that I think that Limb Lengthening needs. I, I actually did research on Elizaroff when I was first getting into the industry of limb lengthening or learning more about it. And it's it's a lot of information that's, you know, all over the place. But I think Quinn did a fantastic job in terms of, you know, bringing everything together because before it was just bootstrapping information. But here you go, the most comprehensive, inform informative discussion about Gabriel Elizaroff, the scrap metal surgeon. Um, like we've mentioned a little bit already. Um, this is kind of on the evolution of leg lengthening or, or similar processes. And, um, and we're going to, you know, focus on your industry here, Victor, which is cosmetic leg lengthening, or at least a big portion of your viewers. That's what they, that's what they talk about. And we talk a lot about intermedullary nails. Um, mm -hmm. however, that's not what most of this can be focused on. It's going to be focused on the stuff way before that. Um, the external fixation, which is still used a lot today too. Um, you know, Dr. Paley has a great video on the transition from external fixation to internal. And I, I think it's on his Facebook. I do highly recommend that video. Mm -hmm. If you're really interested on the transition and the intricacies of that, like I said, um, to be clear, we're, we're mainly focusing on just the external fixation. Um, and even though many people are still getting, um, limb lengthening done this way too. So, yeah. um, and that's Elizarov up there in, in the right as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, some, a lot of the stuff to dig for, I mean, a lot of this information just isn't out there and, um, you don't just find it on a Barnes and Noble, uh, bookshelf. It's, it's, it's just not there. I'm going through third parties. Uh, I'm submitting requests for these papers, um, to try to find information. A lot of it's in Russian. Yeah. Um, a, a lot of it's in Russian, but some of the best stuff has been, uh, pulled or translated from there. Um, I use as many primary sources as I can. Primary are very good secondary sources, which means people, either Elizarov himself or people that are connected with Elizarov. Um, I do want to give a, a few shout outs to three or four main, um, main um, references I used. One of them is Transosseous Osteosynthesis by Elizarov himself. Mm -hmm. um, it's more of a, a textbook. Uh, Dr. Paley um, has a good outline on his website as well, but uh, he also has his own version, uh, which is even more in depth in the Journal of Limb Lengthening and Reconstruction. Dr. Rosbrook, along with Elizarov's daughter, um, have a good source out there as well. And um, Elizarov's daughter has a lot of information that until I read that paper, I didn't know about him. So um, we're getting a lot of this information you know, from his, from his next to kin, basically, which is, I, you can't get too much better than some of those. And then what, what else was cool is Elizarov is just over a hundred years since his birth. So in the last couple of years in the journal of limb lengthening and reconstruction, people who knew him best have submitted some kind of fun, personal, um, quirky things about Elizarov and, um, and, uh, you know, just, just, you'll see some of that throughout, but so those four sources are really where we're getting a lot of this information. And then there's of course other sources as well, but I do want to start by thanking the people that we can thank for, for what we're doing today. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, and then there's a lot of false information out there already. There's a lot of references, a lot of myths on the internet. Um, 
and where the truth ends and, and the myths begin is a very hazy line. And it's kind of fun <laughs> to kind of have this mysterious figure, but uh, it, you know, when we're looking at accuracy, it's, it's difficult as well. I'm going to do my best to kind of separate that, that fable from the fact. Um, for example, there's a movie out there. Apparently I've not found it. There's a movie out there about Elizabeth, but let me tell you how ridiculous it is. He's played by a female. So, you know, that, from the beginning, you just can't trust the credibility of something like that. But um, yeah, so we're going to move on here. Um, um, like I've already mentioned for four episodes, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the backdrop and world history and where mm-hmm. he stood at that time. Um, and then some other science and history, medic, um, medical education on the side. Awesome. So um, sorry here. Um, yeah, so before we even get into him specifically, we're going to just kind of take a minute to uh, set the stage, so to speak. Um, so our ivory scaffolding, aka our bones, is very versatile. Um, and the limb lengthening community probably understands this best, better than most other followings or communities out there, just how much you can do with bones, just, just from a lengthening standpoint. They are truly, truly versatile. Um, but at a first glance, at a, kind of an outside glance, bones are boring, really. They, you kind of, you know, I went to the Smithsonian last week. I threw this picture on here up, up on the right. You know, you almost just think about them as these stationary um, blocks, so to speak, in our body. We never see them, right? They're covered up by skin. They're covered up by muscle. None of them touch the air, right? Mm-hmm. That actually be disastrous. Your teeth aren't truly bones, um, but really none of your bones actually ever contact the air or they shouldn't. Um, (laughs) but, um, and they don't, you know, like I said, they're boring. They don't swell and, and vibrate like, or like vocal cords. Uh, they don't swell and shrink like your stomach, you know, when you eat too many potato chips that you said you wouldn't do. Um, they don't really have rhythms like the circadian rhythm or they don't beat like your heart, you know, um, they're kind of just relics. Uh, there are these petrified relics we see in museums or and they just sit there or so we think you know that's what a lot of people if you ask them about bones that's probably some of the ways they would they would see them Mm -hmm. Uh, they're not sexy you know they're not like our perfect skin you know jennifer aniston's skin or uh you know uh jason momoa's muscle tone you know they don't or your muscle tone victor i don't know whatever you're yeah. Yeah. You know, they're not sexy like that. So right. think of them that way. And you really only think about them when things go wrong or go awry, you know, when you're stubbing your toe at night or when the doctor's pointing out a hairline fracture um, on the screen in his office, because your, your son fell on his, on his hand, something like that. So we don't really start thinking and getting our mind set for these bones until, until we, you know, until something goes wrong. <laughs> Um, and while they're inside of us, they're really almost like outcasts. They're, they're kind of misunderstood. You like think about uh, a corpse. You know, I put a picture on here that they're kind of the rejects of the body. They're uh, spit out by the body when when all else is over. They don't have that privilege of quick decay. You know, when you're in your worst stance, mm-hmm. all the soft tissues, the vessels, the muscles decay away, and what's left? It's the bones. And even the vultures don't want the bones. I mean, <laughs> They don't. So uh, they kind of, they kind of can get this bad rep in the same way, you know, think about some of the, um, some of the idioms out there. Um, if you have a bone to pick with someone, mm-hmm. or if you have a bone dry, well, 
water well in your backyard, or if you have a bad to the bone son-in-law, um, they're not really the thorny idioms you want to find yourself or your daughter uh, caught in the thicket of, you know? Um, so even from kind of the literature standpoint, um, they're kind of thrown under the bus too. Mm-hmm. Um, but so let's move on a couple of these other figures I have here. Bones are actually very fluid and they communicate. They do a lot of different functions, a lot of different functions. A big one's calcium exchange. Uh, if you look at this picture on the bottom right, you know, calcium is current is, is constantly coming in and out of our bones at a constant flux. Um, take something like the parathyroid glands. These are li- bottom right. These are little um, uh, glands uh, in your neck. They're the size of a, of a uh, planter's peanut or even smaller. But mm-hmm. these, these glands will send out hormones, which can, based on the levels of those hormones, will tell your bones to get rid of calcium or hold calcium based on the body's needs. Mm-hmm. Um, and that calcium can be used for several different things. It can strengthen bones and teeth. Uh, it's used in muscle contraction. It's used in wound healing. Uh, it uh, plays a big part in um, the rhythm of the heart. Um, it's used in clotting. Many, many different things that bones can do. Well, darker, grosser way, but I'll, I'll tell you another way. Um, our red blood cells, something like 20 to 30 trillion are in our body at any time. Uh, they live about a 90 to 120 days. Our red blood cells come mainly from the long bones and the vertebra of our body. They're made within the bones. They're transfer, transferred to the circulatory system. What's really cool is this. Not only do these reach the liver and they reach the spleen and, and other parts of the body where the blood cells are then degraded. Some parts are reused, some parts are saved, but the heme molecule, which is in those blood cells, this is the molecule that has iron in it. This is the molecule that binds oxygen and carries it to different tissues. The heme molecule has a very interesting way in which it's broken down. It actually changes colors uh, or the, the mediums that it is made up and change colors based on the way light hits this molecule. And so that's what causes oxygen poor blood to be a little more blue and oxygen rich blood to be a more, a little more red, mm-hmm. but even more interesting, this heme molecule can cause jaundice. So it causes your eyes to turn yellow and your skin to turn yellow because of the way this molecule transforms itself. And it even gives bile its unique color and the same stuff that comes out of our rear end <laughs> is the byproducts of the heme molecules in their cells. So literally that portion of us, st- a lot of that started within our bones. Mm-hmm. So what I'm, the point I'm trying to make here is that um, bones are, are very versatile. They're very fluid. Um, there's a lot they do. Many, many things that we haven't even scratched the surface of and we don't have time to here today. So. <laughs> yeah, I think that it was um, Dr. Rosbrook who even said in one of his interviews with me, he said that bone is a very intelligent tissue and mm-hmm. it's one of the most intelligent tissues in the body. But as you pointed out here, it doesn't get you know, the, 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 the recognition that it deserves essentially. Um, but you know, it's very, it's an amazing tissue in the body. Really is really is. And, and so, you know, I, I say they're more than just dumb bricks holding up our body. And I I can give a few more, maybe more macroscopic or or bigger ways we can think about them. Um, anything from, um, bone marrow transplants, you know, we don't think about 
bone is living, breathing tissue, but, but, but they are. Um, and with a little push, they can breathe in our favor. So like, like pulling a, a bone marrow transplant for different types of, of illnesses. Um, and in surgery, we completely rely on, on the breath of bones, so to speak, we can mm -hmm. cut and paste them almost like a computer. We can literally cut bones out, paste them somewhere else to decrease long-term pain. We can take redundant bone. We can throw it in a medical grade blender and we can take that slurry that it makes and squirt it in that are somewhere like putting compost on dying patches of grass. We can regenerate new bone in perfect form in, in that area. Um, and you look at, um, many, many other aspects. I, so I've got another picture on here, um, which is osseointegration, which you've had mm -hmm. Dr. Rosberg on here before talking about it. Mm -hmm. Um, it's used not only in like dental implants, but also in prosthesis where you're actually getting the bone to grow into these implants and integrating. Mm -hmm. Um, so we can attach different things to different bones, whether that's your, your jaws, um, or your limbs. Um, but we can really utilize the properties of bone coming in around these implants for that. Um, I'll take you on a little case of mine, these bottom pictures. Um, I had a young, uh, a young adult, uh, male, he was in the military come into me and he said, doc, he said, I've had this pain in my foot for, uh, three years now. And he mm -hmm. said, and he was almost in tears. He said, I'm just trying to find somebody who will cut it off for me. I'm, I'm at that point. I want to cut it off and I want to get a prosthetic. And I said, absolutely not. You know, I said, he's had several surgeries, all which have failed. But if you look at this bottom left picture, Victor, there's yeah. the calcaneus, which is your heel bone. Mm -hmm. And it's got a big open void in it. You can see. Yeah. And this was a certain type of cyst that he had within that bone when he came to me. Mm -hmm. um, he also had a slight little fracture through that bone that we could see on other imaging modalities. This is, um, this is interop x-ray or, or fluoroscopy. Okay. And so what we ended up doing was taking out all the bad cysts, getting good margins in that bone. And we mm -hmm. ended up taking, um, the head of a femur from a cadaver, wow. completely unrelated bone, right. From not even from himself. And this mm -hmm. is, you know, this is the head, this is the, the ball and socket, so to speak. You can see it in that second picture there. Yeah. We're able to cut that down and use that to fill in the gap, as you see in the third picture there. Oh and God. then we obviously put on some other plates and screws to help stabilize the construct, but this worked for him. He's wow. walking great now. And there's many, many other stories out there like it. And it's not often, you know, I'm always getting doctor, please don't cut my foot off. And it's not <laughs> often you get a young guy coming to you saying, please cut my foot off. And um, so the point I'm trying to make here is that um, an arm bone doesn't know that it's an arm bone. Okay. Um, and a leg bone doesn't know it's a leg bone, whatever bone that might be. And a lot of times you can take bones from one part of the body and put it somewhere else, especially if it's your own body, but even sometimes, uh, when they're from other people's bodies or even cadavers, um, there's, it's best to take it from your own, so to speak, but bones don't know, you know, where they sit in, in the body or in space, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Um, and so this, this story getting onto Elizarov now is kind of the, um, the story about the, this doctor discovering the acrobatic capabilities of bones and who pushes the extremes of what, um, our ivory scaffolding can do. And through his kind of devoted and daring life, he harnesses some of these hidden abilities of bones to repair defects, um, complex fractures and other, 
imperfections within the skeleton. Gavril Israel, this is the earliest picture I could find of him. Um, he was born in 1921, as I said, the centennial anniversary of, of his um, was just a couple of years ago. Um, I, I'm not a, I love world history. I'm not great at it, but we try <laughs> to drop a little bit in to help with the overall picture of, of this man. Um, what I do know is in 1921, uh, we're a couple of years out of World War I, I believe, um, which was just a lot of turmoil throughout the world. But um, in 1921, he was born in Poland, not, a, mm. not Russia, but Poland. Interesting. Um, that same year, there's uh, what's called the Treaty of Riga or Riga. I'm, I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce it, but uh, it was a treaty between the USSR and Poland. Um, and it basically established a permanent border between the two countries, which actually was only effective until World War II came out. And I, I kind of put a picture in there, more of a propaganda type picture, but uh, a good cartoon of, of that new line that was made. And it also, Russia and Poland were in a war at the same time. It helped in that war as well. Um, there was some fighting over Ukraine, um, mm-hmm. too, but, so that's what was going on the year Elizarov was born. Um, <clears throat> and like I said, this is the earliest picture I could find of him in medical school. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I'd be interested if any of your followers, if they know of or have earlier pictures, send them my way. Um, cause I'd, I'd love, but, you know, obviously in 19, you know, um, early to mid 1900s, there wasn't a lot of photography, but, um, he had, I believe five older siblings, um, when he was wow. born and at a young age, he, um, his family was Jewish and they were actually persecuted a lot mm-hmm. and they had to find this regularity between the ruins of combat. Um, as a consequence, Elizabeth actually got started late. He was like twice the age of the normal elementary school kids when he got started because of wow. all this, um, all this chaos. But from, you know, the few lines I've read on it, he quickly picked up. And obviously, as we all know, he's smarter than the average Joe out there. So, um, but he did get kind of a slow start on his schooling. Um, and then even his medical school, when he got older, was uh, relocated several times due to the invasions of Germany in World War II. Um, and still he found ways to overcome. He was taking his exams on uh, chronically on a chronically empty stomach, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And he was also moonlighting at a rail station for monetary scraps. And he just grew stubbornly persistent and um, eventually graduated in the war's penultimate year of 1944. And wow. we know that World War II ended 1945. Um, and he really, something else that was interesting that he probably would have never went the route of medicine if it weren't for a doctor inspiring him as a child. Uh, he had a bad bug, either the flu or something like that. Um, and a doctor, um, helped heal him and it kind of gave him this, uh, youthful confidence in, in medicine and helped sway his path that way. So mm-hmm. 1945, that next year was when the, when the war ended and, um, it was over. Hitler had swallowed cyanide at this point and surviving soldiers and refugees were homebound, um, if they were able and, um, you know, Stalin and the Russians were actually part of the allied nations, not the Axis. Um, but really his communist agenda kind of 
put a relationship with NATO on, on a teeter. And um, I actually, it's a picture of Stalin in here who I, I, I enjoy because he's got a, a mustache um, that only Elizarovs could, could rival as well. So <laughs> <laughs> I like that, but yeah. Um, and then a little bit on Russia. So Russia consumes something like 10% of the world's landmass. Um, and there's this little never heard of it town. Uh, it's a, it's a town and a district called Kurgan. Mm. Um, and it can get very cold in Kurgan. The mercury can um, hover at zero degrees sometimes, but uh, it's kind of this little remote town down in this almost elbow crease, so to speak, of Russia. Um, just to its south is, I believe it's Kazakhstan. Mm. Um, but this little town was starving for doctors along the frontiers of Russia. And because of this, uh, he got relocated um, after his schooling and was sent down there to serve as a as a general practitioner. Mm -hmm. um, and really, he was one of the only medical men for stretches of miles. So wow. he could kind of do not only is it the 1940s, but, <laughs> but he could also kind of do medicine as he pleased um, or, you know, um, whether he wanted to or not, he, you know, he's by himself or very few other, uh, you know, physicians around him at the time. So he could call his treatments at his own tomb. Mm -hmm. um, where it's more of a uh, therapeutic free will, you could probably call it. But um, he tended to allow these haggard soldiers and men returning home, but also um, other um, civilians within mm -hmm. the area. Um, and what little know, I don't personally know a lot about uh, Curtin. I would love to go there someday. Um, that's that's one of my goals. Uh, but and because so much of what is known about Kurgan is still in Russian and um, and it's just not a not a popular town. Um, it's a flat city in the West Siberian Plains. Um, it used to be known as the Gate to Siberia, mm -hmm. and uh, a lot of Russians were actually exiled there um, back in the day. Um, when the Trans-Siberian um, Railway was created, which kind of ran from Moscow up in what would be Northwest Russia um, down to Southeastern Russia, it, it went, I think, just north of Kurgan and actually kind of helped with the popularity and all that. Um, but they had factories there too um, that came over from Europe or other parts of Russia uh, to kind of get away from the war at points. Um, for example, there's a plant there that made uh, Russian infantry vehicles. Um, yeah. I, I think it's still there today, but don't, don't quote me on that. But, um, but yeah, so that's, that's a little bit of history. It's, it's, you know, we're not talking, uh, St. Petersburg or <laughs> Moscow or any of these big fancy cities in Russia. We're talking about the backwoods that mm. was gentlemen, this, this, um, this amazing figure, um, was operating that. I just want to talk about surgery in, in general. Um, in the pre-war era, in even 1800s, surgery was a hellscape. I mean, it was. Um, it's not that kind of clean, contained process, sterile field and all that that we think of today. Um, and really, surgery has taken many forms and predates written history. Um, you know, as far back as what we have archaeological evidence for, there's different types of surgeries that were performed with six sticks and stones um, or drawn on cave walls of different surgeries happening. So surgery is not new and the progression of it is quite interesting. Mm -hmm. um, fractures, um, since a lot of what Elizarov did originally was fractures, were treated non-operatively. And um, 
the way they were treated was external manipulation, mm-hmm. uh, tight splints, traction, uh, and a lot of crossed fingers, to be honest, Victor. Um, really? You never know. Crossed fingers. You, you never know um, how well it would heal. Um, so the reproducibility of it also wasn't always um, great. And so I just put a few little flashpoints on here uh, about mm-hmm. surgery. And a flashpoint is anything that kind of really stood out. Um, you know, in our own lives, we can think of flashpoints. 9-11 would be a flashpoint. Or mm-hmm. people talk about the death of Elvis as a flashpoint. You, you remember where you were and, and um, what was going on. So these are a few flashpoints in surgery. And the discovery of sulfuric ether was the first anesthesia back in 1846. And it wow. really helped dampen the pain. It wasn't uh, the perfect anesthetic, but we could actually start doing some procedures um, and dampen the pain throughout the process. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem was that even the patients that were daring not enough to try it, still a large percentage of them um, got very sick or died after, after surgeries. Mm-hmm. Um, Hand washing helped help flatten the curve um, a little bit. Um, and more and more as hand washing got more popular, this gentleman here was um, kind of one of the man, one of the men that took on germ theory, uh, Ignaz Semmelweis. I, mm. I think I'm saying that right. Um, <laughs> he's talked about in a lot of different science books and medical books, but this guy is, uh, was, he's interesting. He, he looked at, um, he was one of the first to look at hand washing, how important that was to keep germs down. And if I remember his story, right, he actually, um, there were midwives that were birthing, uh, babies in the hospital and there were doctors that were birthing babies. And he noticed that the midwives, uh, the, the death rates were much lower for the midwives than the doctors, the infant death rates and infections. Mm-hmm. And what he ended up concluding was that the doctors were doing dissections in cadaver labs and getting exposed to a lot more germs than the midwives were and the nurses were. And then they were going to deliver these babies. So there was a lot more babies dying on the doctor's note than on, on the nurse and midwives note. And, wow. um, and uh, it didn't sit well. I mean, that did not sit well with people that the doctors had such a higher death rate and infection rate, right? You can imagine. And uh, his story is actually sad. He actually ends up getting sent to an asylum, uh, died at a pretty young age. Um, and uh, I think he actually got sepsis himself. So mm. um, so the very thing he worked to prevent um, is actually what ended up taking his life. Amazing story if you get a chance to read into him. Uh, and then x-rays came around, uh, around 1895, I think was the first x-ray used. And I got a picture of the hand, which is known to be the first x-ray ever. Really? And the inventor actually took a picture of his wife's hand, you know, so he didn't use it on himself. He said, ah, <laughs> I don't know about this. I'll try it on her. And you can see her wedding ring in the picture there, but <laughs> x-rays helped a lot in surgery, just being able to visualize the bones underneath. Mm-hmm. Uh, now it wasn't great quality x-ray, even back in Elizarov's time. Uh, once it had improved, it still wasn't great. It's nothing like what we have today. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you could think about spatially, you can really start to understand the body at a, at a, in a completely different way. Yeah. And then x-rays and antibiotics. Um, I already mentioned x-rays. I'm sorry, but antibiotics um, help make surgery an even more viable option. Cause now we had anesthesia, mm-hmm. we had prophylaxis with hand washing. We had things like x-rays and many, many other things that added to it. But um, antibiotics and it wasn't penicillins originally. It was actually the sulfa drugs were the first mm-hmm. antibiotics and they would sprinkle it in wounds. It'd be in a powder form sometimes. 
Um, but all these things coming out, these were kind of flashpoints in surgery that Elizarov was actually able to use a lot of these. And they were still primitive compared to what we now have a hundred years later, mm-hmm. where, you know, uh, when he started using them in the forties and fifties, uh, you know, 70 years later, so to speak. But, um, he did have a lot of these techniques, um, that he could use, mm-hmm. um, which helped him eventually develop his method. So what were his, you know, what, we got to understand these are his earliest days before, you know, he's an, definitely a no name at this time. So we don't have much history on him, but mm-hmm. um, what we do know is he was treating soldiers coming home as he was called in to do. And um, they had many different um, medical needs. Um, some had psychological collapse that he probably wasn't able to do a whole lot for. Um, he had to turn a lot of, his attention to things like tuberculosis or dysentery or these other um, major uh, medical issues that we don't think of when we hear of Elizarov or, or think of what we know him um, today. But um, germs could be more sinister than, than, you know, Nazi Germans at the time, you know, uh, they could blow you up with tanks uh, immediately, but a germ gets into a battalion um, and it can sweep through and knock out, uh, thousands more at a time. So, um, really scary stuff. And he had to kind of deal with, um, kind of the fallout of a lot of this. And he did supposedly had two semesters of military surgery, which probably helped him a little bit, but still this was the, um, as we've mentioned, kind of the underprivileged cold hearted Siberian, um, um, landscape. And, um, to quote, uh, a quote I like is that, medicine surgery there um, really had to rely on the courage of both the physician and the patient. Um, So both had to really be brave to, to undergo any aggressive type of, of medical intervention. Hmm. Um, And so we know about a couple, you know, he probably treated hundreds, if not thousands of people, probably thousands, but we know about a couple of them that I believe his daughter wrote about uh, a woman with a cleft lip that begged to go under the knife uh, there was a boy um, who had his nose ripped off by a dog um, that was really left with no alternatives. And Elizarov, even though he'd probably never performed procedures like this before, um, kind of had to be a one-man show and and help heal these heal these patients as he could. And a lot of his early surgeries were dry runs. You know, he didn't have dozens of practices um, before trying to do it. He was um, trying to find solutions on the fly and um, uh, incisions on, on rags the night before, or, um, you know, working on, on just other things that, um, he was really just doing a lot of it as it went and as it came into him without mm-hmm. a specialty or any real type of surgical background like that. He had no attending. He had no formal trainer there to help him with this. He, mm-hmm. he was consuming all this, um, kind of on his own. And he bookwormed through a lot of Russian journals to figure out how. And I've mentioned how hard it is to find some of this information. That's with Google and everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> we're talking about the 1950s. <laughs> I can imagine to find answers and solutions for what people were coming to him for was really hard. But um, if a disease imprisoned the body, uh, from my understanding, Lizarov was doing the best he could to change the patient's fortunes. Um, and so he played internist, he played psychologist, um, but um, he eventually really found himself in, enjoying the subject of 
uh, orthopedics and he would see these soldiers that were returning from the battlefront um, with war-torn limbs and mm. and this piqued his interest and he took care of mangled limbs and he saw how bones could peek through and how germs could get tracked inside and all this and uh, this was just very very interesting to him and kind of the foundation of of what he um, eventually made his legacy out of um you know but he noticed that even with his best efforts the options we had that the state of therapeutics were pitiful. We mm-hmm. just, just due to the times, we just didn't have the advancements and the outcomes, his outcomes were depressingly poor. Um, when bones did heal, say for fractures, they often did so in crude and cockeyed positions. Um, crippled um, probably became pretty common um, for a lot of these soldiers um, coming through Kurgan. Mm-hmm. Um so the interesting part is we don't know a lot about it. And, but these soldiers probably came by foot if they could, um, or they may have even come by some type of vehicle or even horse drawn wagons. Mm-hmm. Um, if they really couldn't, or if they were going long ways. And, um, what's interesting is that some of these that probably did come in horse drawn wagons didn't realize that, um, while they lay in the back of the carriage, um, that the best shot for fixing their lameness could have been hidden within the vehicle that actually carried them, so to speak. We don't know this for sure, but, um, but there's a good chance of it. Um, the thing was, it would take a special mind to figure out how, um, but for some of these soldiers, the answer may have been right there, um, which is pretty cool to think about now, Elizarov's daughter, um, actually said he was taking a ride on one of these carriages when he came up with this idea. Okay. And I'm going to get into exactly what that idea is right here. Now, Quinn, quick question. Yeah, yeah go um, ahead. So Elizabeth is in Kurgan and, you know, these uh, war-torn sur- soldiers are coming through to get, you know, fix their mangled limbs. Um, where was he operating? Was it like in a private location or like in one of the hospitals? Yeah, he was part of... Um, the, I believe it's called the Kurgan General Hospital. Okay. Where he was able to, to do a lot of it. Um, that's my understanding on, okay. on where he was. Um, mm-hmm. He eventually actually um, does a lot of uh, flying um, mm-hmm. to go out and probably does a lot of his medicine at, you know, the patient's residence. I see. Um, and, and actually, I, I, should, I should update what I just said. His daughter actually said he was going to see a patient on this, on this, um, on this, uh, carriage, this horse drawn mm-hmm. carriage when he got this idea. Um, so yeah, hospital when he could is my understanding. Um, and then probably like old time doctors went to people's residence and houses, uh, when that they couldn't come to him. Gotcha. Very cool. Um, so I'm going to ask you, Victor, since you asked yeah. me what, what have you heard in the past on where was the inspiration for the Elizabeth frame? Well, you know, in my early research, I saw a lot of things about, you know, wheels, like a bicycle wheel. That's essentially what I heard. Um, that was the inspiration for the Elizar of the ring fixator. Yeah, that's what I had always heard. I actually had a, a, a new friend who's going to become an orthopedic resident in my, my hospital. And about a month ago, he was telling me, hey, Quinn, I saw this talk a while back about Elizarov and they were talking about how all this came from bicycle wheels and 
<laughs> and all this. And I didn't tell him at the time I was, I was writing this, but I said, Oh, interesting. Interesting. <laughs> so even a lot of prominent doctors around the world say it came from bicycle wheels, but mm-hmm. I have two sources to say it didn't. Number one's Paley. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Paley mentions this in his paper and he's mentioned in other places as well. Now he doesn't go on to say where it came from. So this, this article from Elizabeth's daughter tells us that it actually came from a portion of one of these horse-drawn carriages. Um, but either way, uh, both of them say it absolutely was not a, it was not a bicycle wheel that um, got the inspiration. And if you look at this picture of the frame on the, on the leg, the cartoon there, you can see how it resembles a bicycle wheel. And I completely understand. It's still kind of the easy way to explain to somebody what this is. And yeah. I've used the, you know, I've used the, um, the synonym for it before as well. Um, but I want to, this is one of my favorite things and all that we're going to talk about. I want to clear the air on what our understanding is um, based on the most primary and secondary sources I can get on where this came from. Mm-hmm. And so as wagons passed through Kurgan, they noticed this unique, uh, or Elizarov noticed this unique harness. Um, and actually it was a design that was Xeroxed from the fins um, that they kind of used to decorate their own cavalry. Mm-hmm. And what it's called is a Duga. And I've got two pictures of it here. You can see the bottom right, it's red. Um, and then the top right, I think it's actually a picture from Russia from the early 1900s. But it's this uh, large, it's called a Duga, or it's also called a shaft bow. And mm-hmm. it's this large um, wooden arch or just arch that rainbows over the horse's neck. Yeah. Uh, it kind of stands out. It's pretty prominent. Um, but then it's fastened to rods on either side, as, as you can see, and mm-hmm. those rods are locked into the wagon. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of this full body wooden halo um, that secures the horse an equal and even distance from the wagon Interesting. Um, and from other horses. Mm-hmm. However, it doesn't compromise the horse's maneuverability. So that horse, he was watching how, okay, it has this frame on and this frame wraps around it and kind of still gives it its space. The horse can freely gallop through the snow and the snort and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, it can still dip its head down and, and dip its muzzle into the water. Um, and all the while the coachman perched up um, in the wagon maintains complete control. And so you think about Elizarov starting to think I could almost be that coachman and um, have have maneuverability, but also control, right? Mm. And so uh, one of the quotes that his daughter also put was that uh, Elizabeth was a dreamer, um, but he was not an idle dreamer. And I just want to, for a side note, anybody out there that is dreaming about something, go do it, right? Um, you can you can do anything you want to do. And um, dreams are great and ideas are great, but they're, they're a reason that they're cheap as table salt, right? Anybody can have the idea, but going out and doing it is what Elizarov's done. That's what you've done with C4L, Victor. It's what I'm doing and discussing this and talking about this book. I mean, really cool ways to contribute to the world. And, mm-hmm. and so I love this idea of Elizarov being a dreamer, but not an idle dreamer, a progressive right. dreamer, so to speak. Absolutely. Um, so yeah. So he said, okay, I can fixate the bone from the outside, not the inside. This is, <laughs> this is pretty revolutionary. Um, and we're going to talk about the end on whether or not there were other people doing the same thing. So I, I do want to mention that. Um, but 
we're not going to focus on that um, for the rest of this presentation. But um, so his imagination really could ripple the orthopedic field as he had kind of this workaholicism, so to speak, um, that could turn those ripples into waves, I, I like to think. And um, so he said, OK, we can use this Duga harness or this mini Duga harness on crippled soldiers. Mm. And um, yeah, so like I've explained, he did kind of a thought experiment and he said, OK, if the horse was a broken leg, for example, mm -hmm. and he was the coachman, AKA the surgeon, he could control that bone by fastening it to this mini Duga, this mini mm -hmm. shaft, bow, this, this mini harness. Um, yet the knee and the ankle could still flex and move if that's what he wanted. Um, they could still move through the range of motion. So um, for, for the day, it was an incredible uh, way of, way of thinking. Um, you know, at that time they still used, or they did use, you know, primitive forms of plates and screws and stuff like that that went under the skin. And he said, let's not go under the skin. Let's go around the skin, right? Mm -hmm. Let's go around the bones. So that's incredible. Yeah. So he just by watching these carriages come into the town, he just had this thought experiment and came up with this amazing idea. That's, that's incredible. Yeah. We don't know. We, and, and this is where I have to be clear on, we don't know when the day exactly he had this idea, but it You're was right. from carriages seeing this unique design that wasn't worldwide it was like i said the Finns, the russians did it mm -hmm. um, but that's what helped inspire him um so yeah that's so we don't have the exact day or the exact time anything like that but we do know at some point he was seeing it or he was riding in one and that soldiers coming through were probably riding in something similar as well um so 1946 through the 50s these were his first years um just a little bit more in the history, there was, um, there's still kind of rollover and there was fallout from the, the wars of the previous decades. And leading up to the war, Russia actually shifted a lot of their efforts to hoarding um, and forging um, heavy metals and heavy mm -hmm. industrial items. And Stalin was kind of using terror as a tool with his propaganda. And he was kind of whitewashing these, um, supreme leader motives at the time but um he actually had hundreds of his top uh officers assassinated mm -hmm. um and uh, you know he i know there's everything with the kgb and stuff like that at that time um sure so there's a lot of stuff going on within russia and 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 the russians almost became slaves of their own land and they almost became cocooned from this outside influence so to speak and um, part of that is why some of this technology took so long to get back out at the same time. But mm. so instead of cultivating farms or uh, growing livestock or, or sowing wools, whatever people did um, back in the day, um, Stalin kind of pivoted the efforts to heavy metal manufacturing, especially like steel and iron and things like that. And uh, any industrial scraps that were left over could find other uses. Um so there was metal around is what I'm getting at. Um, it is not because of this that Elizarov figured out this technique, but there was metal available is the point I'm trying to make. But so the young doctor set up a workshop in 1946, started making prototypes. He was two years out of medical school at this time. Um, and he began repurposing this horse's harness into a prototype for broken arms and broken legs. And um, any idea what he used as his uh, representation for the, for the legs and arms, Victor. <laughs> um, you got me there. <laughs> okay. 
he took a broomstick, you know, he was in broomstick. his garage, he took a broomstick and snapped it over his leg probably. <laughs> and, um, and that's what he used. And he used, he kind of fumbled around with it and, and these parts that he had created and he anchored them all back together. And he was kind of this one man R and D show is kind of what I like <laughs> to think of him as operating out of his own garage reminds me of, if you think about it in the field of medicine or orthopedics, especially it's all, it would be almost like Steve Wozniak and Steve jobs working out of their garage or home, wherever they were uh, developing some of the early prototypes of the Mac. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of a cool um, connection to make there, but um, yeah. Also at the same time, this is another very early picture. He met his wife um, in 1950. She was a, a uh, radiologist in the hospital. So this was, um, this was parts of his first apparatus sometime around 1951, 1952, um, a nearby silversmith actually started manufacturing the parts for him and making a patentable product. And it was about six plus years in the making at this time. And the form had changed from the original Duga harness we just showed, mm-hmm. um, kind of revamped it. He made other special shapes and connectors and these half rings and these full rings. And, mm-hmm. and we'll talk more about the full rings at other times, but uh, created these kind of very stable constructs and he created struts that could connect them together. And mm-hmm. he would drill these long flimsy pins and tighten them down to the bone. Yeah. Um, and he would put it all together with nuts and bolts. I mean, wow. it was, it was you know, carpentry is <laughs> is great as metalworking. Um, you know, anybody I love I do a lot of woodworking. This is I'm like, man, this is this is cool stuff. You're just <laughs> fastening it together and with the rusty parts back in the 19, 1940s and 50s. But um, what else was versatile about this apparatus was he could stack these rings and these parts up and he could make it as small or as big as he really wanted to. So for big long fractures spanning, you know long parts of the limb he could mm-hmm. he could essentially build this up and accommodate it for whatever the issue was that he had he and really some people think about a scaffolding kind of going around the mm-hmm. limb that's probably a good way to think about it um, yeah. so you could build the scaffolding up or you could take it down depending on what you needed in the building mm-hmm. oh so, yeah so these were some of the earliest parts and there's a there's a picture of him i think sometime around uh sometime around 19 early 1950s Mm. Um, so his first patient, we know very little about his first patient that he treated with his apparatus, but we do know, we do know something. Um, so after further testing, mainly on probably broken broomsticks, uh, he probably got sick of, you know, breaking brooms. I'm sure his <laughs> wife did or where, I don't know where they got all the broomsticks from, but who knows? He, uh, decided to offer the device to humanity and a nearby foundry started making molds of these parts for him um, and sent him castings kind of as he requested. So he, you know, he got um, almost an assembly line of this stuff going, not an assembly line per se, but just reproducibility um, of his product. Um, And so what's interesting is he, he um, wanted the people that was doing this for him. One of the employees asked if he could try it out on him. And so, um, Elizarov actually uh, offered one of the employees making his devices, a new lease on life, which is, wow. kind of cool, um, kind of circumferential story coming, coming back around. So uh, let's talk about non-union for a second. And if anybody knows non-unions, the limb lengthening community is, is 
great on knowing this. You yeah. talk about it on nearly every episode that the term mm-hmm. is thrown out, but let's talk about kind of what it is. I got a bone on here and mm-hmm. what happens when a bone breaks, you know, first you kind of get this clot formation, sometimes a hematoma or this piling up of blood and growth factors, inflammation to the area. And eventually you can get kind of this, um, this, um, callus formula around a lot of times we call it like a soft callus mm-hmm. we can get new blood vessels angiogenesis to the area and until we heal that bone as you see on on the right part of that diagram um that's how things should work right um but um there's an insurmountable uh number of microscopic processes going on to heal a bone we just can't even fathom it to be honest but despite the body's best efforts healing can fail. And mm-hmm. we call this a non-union. Um, there's other types, delayed unions, malunions, but we're going to kind of just simplify it to non-unions. And I'm going to actually pickpocket Elizarov because I really liked a way he explained this in one of his references. He said, non-unions are like a construction site. Okay. So the bone picture as a construction site and the site is manned by two competing crews. Okay. And they're using the same materials to do what they need to do. Crew A is building things and crew B is demolishing it. And crew A is taking those parts and using crew B stuff to rebuild. So mm-hmm. either is really accomplishing what they came to do. And um, it's just an unproductive cycle. And uh, as Elizarov quotes, he says, at the end of the day, the work site is full of misused building materials after a lot of wasted time and labor. So um, redundant tissue fails to overcome this destructive effect. So you can think about the bone just in this constant state of turnover, rebuilding turnover. It's an expensive process. Um, it's not an efficient process. Yeah. And that's what non-unions, you know, in, in a nutshell, had a non-union. And I don't even think we know where it was at but he had a non-union. And so in 1952, um, the factory worker became patient Uno and Lezerov took his literally hot off the line uh, apparatus and, um, and applied it to the patient and was able to heal the fracture. And it was a quiet victory, but kind of got the ball rolling and, um, and caused him to seek out other patients. So some of his next patients were, um, some more of these soldiers and, and nearby citizens, civilians that dealt with the long-term ramifications of tuberculosis. Um, there were anti-TB um, organizations at the time. There was other infectious disease campaigns, all this, um, but it was still not only an epidemic, but a pandemic, and mm-hmm. um, especially throughout Russia. And even today, tuberculosis claims a million lives each year. I mean, it, it is still... Um, I forget where it sits, if it's the most, or it's up there with, um, you know, one of the most prolific diseases we have. And what a lot of people don't know is that we think about lungs um, and we think about the chest a lot of times when we think about tuberculosis, coughing and coughing mm-hmm. up blood, and all that. but tuberculosis can overflow or spill into other body systems. Mm-hmm. And one of that is joints, especially large joints. Um, and they can destroy the joints and, they can, if you take the knee, for example, like I put on here, they can kind of render the leg futile and uh, agonize, agonize, agonizingly sore, so to speak. Yeah. And um, So you could fuse the leg um, 
and you could fuse the bones and essentially create one long bone from the from the hip all the way down to the ankle. Mm-hmm. I mean, this would be the world's, you know, about longest bone you could make <laughs> in the human body. Um, but I put these pictures on here. This is from a, a more recent journal, 2020 or something like that. I'd, I'd have to check again. Um, but it's still being done in some parts of the world. So look at the knee on the left. Yeah. You can see the joint between the femur and the tibia there. A little dark space, but this knee is swollen. Um, and you can attach an external fixator as we've already talked about on there mm-hmm. and actually fuse the knee. And wow. you can see the clinical picture or the x-rays on the right, um, that obviously that gap is gone, you mm-hmm. know, no joint, no pain, essentially, uh, or, or in theory. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I've got another picture on there, which is actually a canine specimen, which really shows how these bones fuse and that trabeculation of the bone the microcosmic process of this bone becomes one continuous um, piece. Yeah. So that's crazy. It kind of goes back to what you said before is like bone doesn't really know where it is in space. It just kind of does its thing. Heals. It does. Yeah. You can kiss them together and and they'll marry, you know, (laughs) take the cartilage out between them. And that's really what, what can happen. Um, So Elizabeth basically figured out he could, he could lock, or trap any bone or joint in, in space. And um, he realized that with this frame, people could wear it and still be able to ambulate during the healing process. And as I've mentioned a couple of times, most surgeons and uh, at the time were still doing screws and, and plates in the body as we still most oftenly do today. Um, but he's like, oh my gosh, I can take these, <laughs> a handful of metal skewers, so to speak. And, you know, I always think of like the game, was it Kerplunk where they (laughs) skewers go through, but metal skewers are these long, thin, um, pieces, um, of metal through the bone, um, different shapes and sizes, but, uh, simply he, he figured out he could do that and heal complex fractures and other difficult cases. Mm. So fractures and tuberculosis was a lot of what he started out with this. And he published his results early on and presented them at a well-known conference in Moscow. Mm-hmm. and he had a lot of critics for it. This was, <laughs> this was not, um, this was not the normal way. Um, this, this was barbaric in a way, so to speak. And it was almost a scientific misconduct you could think about as, and they were skeptical of his, what he found to be almost near perfect outcomes. And he was accused of a lot of wrongdoing for this. And, um, let me give you an example. Do you remember who, um, Gregor Mendel was from your high school biology class. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, genetics. Yeah. yeah. So this happens genetics. all the time in, in, in science and medicine where people will get in trouble for falsifying or embellishing their results. And Gregor Mendel, albeit after his death, actually got in trouble. He was the one that showed that with dominant recessive genes, you could monitor the height of pea plants. Mm-hmm. And when they went back and looked at his results decades later, they found out he was probably exaggerating his results a little bit. Um, he was dead and couldn't defend himself. Um, and he's still uh, kind of the father of, of genetics today, but uh, this happens all the time. People come out with crazy processes. Um, and a lot of times people either criticize them for it, or they criticize how they got to their answer or um, their outcomes and results. Now, for all we know, we don't think Elizarov was faking anything. And he had a lot of work and a lot of writing to show that he wasn't. Um, but this was kind of the reception of it um, at the time. And 
So this was in Moscow. He kind of brushed off that national criticism for the moment and tried to score a little bit of hometown love instead. He, he went yeah. back to Kurgan and said, okay, <laughs> uh, the city was too big and is, is um, too much too fast, so to speak. And um, he had a few, so he presented on it there in Kurgan at, at another conference. And he had a few issues that hurt him. Um, his public speaking skills weren't strong and his tongue would kind of become this uh, entangled snarl and uh, mm-hmm. he couldn't verbalize. And these are complex processes, right? It was very hard to verbalize what was going on um, to people who have never heard of, of such a thing. So, um, so yeah, so he talked about how he could get people to walk in this frame and, and, and without walking aids in just 10 days after surgery, they were able to walk. And he, um, um, he, and these are his words. He could, uh, on their knee joints, he turned the joints to complete bone. Like I showed earlier in an average of 18 days, mm. which was very quick for the time. And I can see where people, uh, started, started wondering if, if these results were, were true. Um, and so again, even at his hometown, the results were fairly lukewarm. Um, nobody was too excited. Uh, he was still seen as reckless, and one of my favorite quotes is they saw as kind of a locksmith's approach to orthopedics, um, which is kind of cool to think about. But um, so Elizarov kind of became a captive in his own science and his own medicine. But um, as far as we know, he wasn't lying and he was getting stellar results um, better than, than his contemporaries at, at the time. Mm. Um, so this is, this is our last page here, but Despite the controversy and the poo-pooing and the boo birds and all that, they um, some of them tried to give it a shot themselves. They tried to they tried to do what he did and see if they could go back to their labs or their uh, surgical suites or whatever and, and do the same. And so there was kind of these uh, makeshift um, apparatuses that were made. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, some use squares instead of rings, which kind of threw off the balance and the, the chi of the whole uh, instrument or, or apparatus. Um, one freeloader even approached him about co-naming the apparatus. Um, oh. And in turn, he would help prioritize the, the patenting process because he had many, many patents to come. And as far as I can tell, Elizabeth, I was like, you know, hell no, I've put in quite too much <laughs> work on to, to do anything like that. So... Um, so yeah, top level Moscow physicians were basically forging these copycat fixators. Um, and some of them were even marketing them as Russia's official device. Mm. So, you know, he, a lot of rotten tomatoes being thrown at him and figuratively, uh, so to speak, but he was kind of, this was helping develop his heart as nails main that a lot of people who know a little bit about Elizabeth know him for, and we'll get into his personality in, in later episodes, but um, his ego would not bruise. This guy was, was, and I say tough as nails, uh, yeah. was really becoming tough as nails. And um, so I want to leave you with, with, with a couple things on this. There was kind of another factor at play. Uh, you could kind of call it his secret sauce. You know, um, people can make these other cliche metal components and anybody could um, dissemble a drivetrain, so to speak, or, or and repurpose the cogs, or they could uh, take a, a wire snipper and they could cut out the spokes of a bicycle if they wanted to. Um, you know, you could get this metal from scrapyards anywhere. Um, and 
that stuff was around. Um, there were tractors sitting idle that you could go get the stuff from or whatever. You, you could you could find rings, you could find nuts and bolts, you could find these pieces anywhere. So um, what Elizarov really had and made wasn't all that fancy and wasn't all that unique, but behold what he did have. And that was what nobody else on the planet could rip off. Nobody. Mm. And that was a near decade of experience using this apparatus, right. understanding how his patients responded to it after he started applying it for many years, um, how the bones obeyed the metal that he put into them. And um, he really kind of created this almost scrap pile of patients and outcomes in his mind. And, um, and um, he could, his experience alone could keep him out of the reach of anybody just trying to do this willy nilly um, with the parts they come up with. So parts be damned, so to speak, the process was, was the key. And so I'll leave you with this, that while the scammers manufactured knockoffs, um, little did they know that several years prior, Elizarov began to find natural laws that even he didn't think were possible. Mm. That's a cliffhanger. I'm going to leave you with for part two. Yeah. And in part two, just, uh, just to draw some excitement, um, we're going to talk about was Elizarov the first to use external fixation. We didn't get into it today. Um, but we're going to talk about that because many think he is, and that's not necessarily the case. Uh, have a little offshoot pit stop on Chinese foot binding and cranial deformities. And mm. you understand why, when we get there, we're going to talk about a fortunate accident that happened in favor of Elizarov. Um, and also, um, early patients, early famous patients that he operated on, which helped kind of boost his fame. So, um, these are references for this, this uh, presentation alone. Um, the three I, I mentioned earlier um, are in blue. Uh, huge thanks to these references and the doctors who've spent their life putting some of this stuff together. Um, and then the, the fourth reference I mentioned was some of these fun, some of this fun material coming in over the last couple of years uh, in the limb lengthening journal. But mm -hmm. um, I hope you enjoyed it. Like I said, that the guy is incredible. And the more I've dug into him, the more I've really been inspired by him. So. Yeah, absolutely. Quinn, I think that was a fantastic discussion. And I, I mean, if you guys get a chance to, um, he, his novel is going to be incredible. So when it comes out, we're going to do like a huge campaign for it. Cause it's really, really, uh, amazing. Uh, but that was amazing. Quinn, I like, I felt like, you know, a kid reading or watching a story about this amazing orthopedic surgeon from years ago. And like I said, the godfather of limb lengthening, we're going to get into more of that as the series continues in the coming weeks. Um, so I would like to thank Dr. Schrader for coming on and um, doing part one of history of the Elizarov. This was awesome. Thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to the next three. And yeah, guys, if you have questions, put them into the comments. Um, and I will, will, uh, will try to address some of them. Um, but uh, I'm enjoying it just as much as you are, I think, Victor. So appreciate yeah, it. Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah, guys, just like Quinn, uh, Quinn said, just put all your comments below uh, or shoot me an email and I'll get them ready for our discussion at the start of the next episode. Um, and also, like he said at the beginning of the discussion, if any of you guys are limb lengthening patients, prospective limb lengthening patients thinking about the procedure or you're a current limb lengthening patient thinking about stature lengthening um, and you'd be interested in speaking to Dr. Schrader about possibly being in his novel, just same thing. Shoot me an email um, and I'll put you in touch with him. So. Yeah, it'd be great. I, the novels, I'm a very busy person. The novels probably 
a year and a half out. Um, like I said, I'm, I'm still developing a lot of it. If anybody has any great stories about walking, locomotion, stature lengthening, feel free. I, I'm always happy to talk. I'm easy to talk to. Um, and yeah, this, this is awesome. Thanks, Victor. What an incredible part one to our multi-part series on the history of Villazaroff. We hope you found the interview informative as we explored the background, early life, and career of Villazaroff and how his medical experiences during the war influenced the development of his revolutionary technique. In part two, we'll delve deeper into the Villazaroff method with Dr. Schrader. So if you have any questions, be sure to post them below and we'll answer them at the start of our next episode. Thanks again for watching and be sure to tune in for part two on the series of the history of Villazaroff. Until next time, this is Victor from Cyborg for Life. Signing out.